0: There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective.
1: No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who is about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served.
2: Hello, and welcome to a special Pride Month, super special episode of Vulgar History. In today's episode, I'm actually re-releasing an interview that I held last year with Maya Dean, the author of Wrath Sing: the trans reimagining of the story of Achilles. It was one of my favorite conversations. It was the first queer content that I think I had on this podcast, actually, and Maya is such a font of knowledge about so many different people. Technically, this episode is talking about the Chevalier d'Anne, who was a French trans woman who was also a spy and just like total tits out badass in the 18th century. And Maya is right there explaining lots of nuance to the story as well. But then she also manages to work in talking about the history of French fairy tales, which is interesting because that connects with the recent episode we did about Madame Delnoy. Maya also talks about Achilles, some other trans figures from 18th century France. It's a real, I learned so much. And what I want to tell you is it it struck me at the time. And I still remember Maya was just casually throwing out facts. She is, she just knows all this stuff back of her hand. It's amazing. But also one of the reasons why I am re-releasing this today is because Wrath Goddess Singh, Maya's book, has just been released in trade paperback. So, And the cover is gorgeous. The original cover, also gorgeous. Trade paperback, gorgeous. So if you already bought a copy, you know, might as well complete the set by the trade paperback as well. Or if you haven't bought this book yet, then the trade paperback is a great occasion to get a a cute copy of this fantastic book. Wrath Goddess Singh was also nominated for one of the Lambda Literary Awards for Transgender Fiction which uh, Maya, it didn't win that category, but you know what? The nomination is an honor, obviously, and I wanted to share that as well because all this success came to Maya after, after we did this interview last year. So I hope you enjoy this re-release of an interview with Maya Dean, author of Wrath Goddess Sing. So we're back on the Internationale Saga. This week, we're going to be looking at the story of a woman from 18th century France, which I think you can know is going to mean me pronouncing some things in my effortlessly perfect French accent. I'm joined today for this episode by Maya Dean, who is the author of the book Wrath Goddess Sing, which just just came out. So we talk about that in the episode as well. So Wrath Goddess Sing is a retelling of the Iliad. So drawing on ancient texts and modern archaeology to reveal the trans woman's story hidden underneath the well-known myths of the Iliad, Wrath Goddess Singh weaves a compelling, pitilessly beautiful vision of Achilles' vanished world, perfect for fans of Song of Achilles and the Inheritance Trilogy. So we're going to definitely talk about that. We're going to talk about Achilles. We're going to talk about trans history. I think it's so perfect because it's June. It's Pride Month. And honestly, Maya Dean is here with the facts and the information. She knows so much about the person who we're talking about. It's kind of a bit like she's telling the story to me. So I hope you enjoy this episode about the Chevalier, Dayon. I'm so excited today. I'm here with Maya Dean author of so at the time this podcast comes out your book will have like been out for like a week but we're recording it before it comes out so can you just like first of all tell everybody about your book please
3: sure hi i'm maya dean my my book which will be out by the time you hear this is Raf got a Sing, which is a retelling of the life of achilles from Iliad as the trans woman that she was which is a bold claim but you know <laughs> so Raph got a Sing really explores Alternate and submerged readings of familiar myths to give us uh, Achilles as she might have been in the Bronze Age, in a world that was just on the brink of collapse. A world that was in many ways much nicer to live in than the world of the next thousand years in large parts of the region, like Mycenaean women had equal pay, apparently.
2: So just from like looking at like the, what's out there, like your bio and your website and stuff, like you've been into like this mythology since a very young age, right? Lifelong. Absolutely. I feel like, so for me and my, I feel like you are for like the Trojan War and like Greek mythology as I am for like the women of Tudor history, which is Uh just like from like a weirdly young age. It's just like, this is my thing. And here we go. Yeah. 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 So I'm excited for you, like that this book is coming out. That is, you get to explore all this stuff.
3: Oh gosh. Yeah. The Tudor period is so fascinating. You get so many big personalities.
2: It's, well, no, exactly. And it's not about me. This is about you. But actually today we're talking, so you're joining me both because you have this book coming out and because I got the best email from your publicist saying like, Maya has this book coming out and here are some other things that she can talk about as well. And one of them was trans women of 18th century France. And I was like, literally, as I read that, I was like, I'm currently researching a trans woman from 18th century France. So like, this is the perfect opportunity. So today you're joining me and we're going to be talking about a woman whose name is what well, we're going to call her La Chevalier, which was kind of a title that a she was title? given at one point. It's a French word. It means like knight effectively, right? It's like,
0: mm-hmm.
2: it's a, a, a role that she earned. So she was assigned male at birth, was a woman. And so the name... I'm just going to do my best with this extremely long French name. Her name was Charlotte jean Louise Augusta Andrea Timotea D'Or de Beaumont. She kind of carried around a lot of names. Yeah. She had, like, it's all of the names, which is why, I don't know, in history, like she's mostly like people refer to her when you look it up. It's like the Chevalier, like that is how she is, tends to be known. And I feel like in her life, that's kind of like what she went by, maybe. La yeah. I love that is just sort of like the presence of that just being like, it's not just like, oh, I'm Anne. It's like, oh, hi, I'm La Chevalier. Like, okay, like step back. Like, already, this is a cool person.
3: Oh yeah, no, she made a big deal out of it. In fact, that was like one of the ways, like she was an early feminist. And one of the ways that she related to other early feminists, who thought she was a cis woman who had been raised as a boy. But one of the ways she related to them was by like, Mary Wollstonecraft actually mentions her in passing in some of her writings, talking about how like, la chevalier proves that women can be warriors and she knew that like she would be read that way she intended like this was she wanted to be understood and accepted by her this woman peers definitely she positioned herself that way intentionally
2: yeah and so what like we're gonna just kind of like go through like birth to death like what was her situation but it's like the gender stuff is such a big part of kind of the mythos that she like built up around herself, like how she kind of mm-hmm. like used that for PR reasons. But I want to mention that like her life was also so interesting. Right. Aside from that, just like the, the espionage of it all. Like there's there's a lot to get into. La Chevalier was born October 5th, 1728 in Burgundy into a poor noble family in a wine-bearing region. And I mention that because wine does become up later. Is like a, a thing that she's smuggling.
3: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Burgundy. A lot of stuff was happening in Burgundy, actually. Like, Abbe de Choisy, better known occasionally as the Comtesse de Bar, um, actually lived as a woman in Burgundy for some years and wrote a very famous best-selling memoir that probably was still pretty accessible in Leah's childhood.
2: Yeah. Oh, my God. I love that. Did not know that detail. So, Yeah. Burgundy. And the sort of like the early years, like just from what I've read, it's like pretty much, it's kind of like, like most people alive at that point in France. Like we don't know a lot about like the early years because no one really wrote it down. So I just kind of know about like, she excelled in her schooling. Um, She went into military training. By age 35, she'd gotten a law degree, published books about the French tax system, been knighted and became a celebrated fencer.
3: Oh, yeah. She was like a fantastic, like even... Much later in her life in England, she spent a fair bit of time giving exhibition fencing matches. I'm sure Georges de Boulogne will, will come up at some point.
2: Yeah, so the so just like right away, before we get into the rest of it, it's like this is a person who's like really smart, really educated, really athletic, and then skilled in these, in these impressive ways. Fencing to me is like a really epic skill. Oh yeah, I also want to mention, so like, like much of what we know about her early life comes from... So she wrote an autobiography, but I don't think it was published. And I think it was... she Like it was ghostwritten. Like she hired someone else to write it for her. So we get... But she wrote these other books as well. So in the introduction to this never-completed autobiography, some modern-day historians said that by 1758, she was a rising star among the young aristocratic elite who hoped to serve the monarchy in some important capacity. So she was just like smart. She was charismatic. She was talented. And it's just kind of like she was from like, what did I say? It's like a a noble but poor family. But she was like elevating herself just by virtue of being like so good. Mm -hmm. Basically.
3: Yeah. Her family had like the sort of positioning where they they had noble enough blood and all that to be positioned where they could excel and could rise themselves through like skilled bureaucracy and stuff. And she was a talented intriguer. So,
2: yeah. No, she was like ambitious. Like she was like, I'm just going to like make my mark in the world. Here we go. So she was given the role of a diplomat to Russia and England, like officially, but privately what she was doing was she worked for the most clandestine spy service in France, Le Secret du Roi, or the King's Secret. So this was like, you could probably explain this better than I can, but like the King was like suspicious. And he wanted to have these secret spies working directly for him, like not going through the rest of the political everything. So she, I love this. This is like it's like a James Bond moment. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. A lot of people cast doubts on like some of the claims she made about her spying in Russia, mostly about the idea that she spent most of it, you know, looking gorgeous in dresses. But I mean, that's not particularly implausible.
2: No, exactly. So yeah, that's the thing. There's something like, so she's charged with fostering good relations with the Russian court. So Empress Elizabeth is who is is there. And so, okay. One article I read said like the Empress liked to have balls, like metamorphosis balls where like gender nonconformity was like celebrated. And that's what was done, which is not to say that's how or why she started potentially dressing in this glamorous in glamorous dresses, but it's like, If it's already a court where, like, gender is not strictly binary, like, maybe... Great opportunity. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And then I think I saw something about where it's, like, because she was presenting as a woman, she was able to get into places, like, men maybe couldn't go to, like, learn some more of the secrets, to, like, get closer to the empress and that sort of thing. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, but certainly what she's... In her memoirs, she talks about essentially being able to get in all sorts of places that men couldn't go. Because there are so many historians who are trying to narrate her as cis, obviously there's like a line of uh, critique where people say that, well, maybe she was exaggerating those stories to make her herself seem more useful.
2: But like, probably not. Honestly, I've I've had this in a couple other episodes of my podcast where like, if someone writes their memoir... And it wow. says something that historians like that just doesn't fit into this like binary concept. They're like, oh, well, she's probably exaggerating, like not just her, but other people are like, this probably isn't true. And I'm like, well, this is her memoir. And like, I trust her more than mm-hmm. I trust like a 20th century, like cis white man being like, I don't believe it. It's like, well, I believe her if I'm going to believe anyone, frankly.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's <laughs> it's really it's really an interesting thing. I mean, like this is uh, this is what like uh, Catherine the Great is at court. That kind uh, of thing. Period. It's Elizabeth.
2: I'm I mean, I know Elizabeth. it wasn't uh, oh.
3: Catherine the Gate, like a great, like a junior figure at that point, not yet. Catherine oh yes, the Gay. yes,
2: yeah. I feel like in
3: the fabulous and wildly historically inaccurate, the Great, it would be like season
2: one. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I don't know. Anyway, I find it like this is why I'm so happy to have you here because, like, so much of this history. It's just been interpreted for so long by like cis white men who are like trying to make these stories fit into a paradigm that they understand. And part of it, I think, with the Chevalier is like, well, she's so impressive. She did these like, it's like, surely a woman couldn't have done these things. So it must have been a man in disguise. But like then like the contortions you have to make to make that fit a story that clearly is the story of a trans woman. So yeah, exactly. Season one of The Great is what's happening. Apparently she dazzled in her post. So like she was like, and the, the fashion, the outfits, and again, just like the charisma. And she's so smart and I'm sure like quick and witty. So then France entered into the Seven Years' War with Britain and La Chevalier was ordered to return to become a captain. Oh, and this is where she was later admitted to the prestigious Order of St. Louis and honored with the title Chevalier, which means, so it's an honorific. It's just kind of, it's the equivalent of being like dame or like lady, whatever. After the war ended, she was appointed as liaison to the English court but again, working directly for the king with secret orders to scope up the coastline for a possible French invasion of England. Yeah,
3: that came, out, that came in handy later.
2: <laughs> yeah. So it was a prominent position, but it wouldn't last. So according to this, the one source I was looking at here, uh, she enjoyed England a little bit too much. Um, she was strongly reprimanded for importing too much wine. And I feel like you can't take the Burgundy out of the girl. Like <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Uh, so then within six months, she was fired for insolence and given two weeks to return to France. So she knew that if and when she returned to France, she'd probably, she'd be sent to the to jail, to the Bastille. So she just decided to like not return. She's just like, what if I stay in England? So the king, which is Louis, God, I'm so bad at telling the Louis apart, 15th furiously ordered her to be extradited to France, but the British foreign minister refused, declaring her she was free to stay in Britain as a private citizen. So she's just like the scandal of it, you know, just she set herself apart from just like everyone else right away because it's like the king is demanding her back, like the foreign minister is here. Like she's just like at that. So already she's like a celebrity in that extent.
3: It it gets even wilder because uh, the way she got reprimanded for insolence was pretty weird. Um, A new ambassador was assigned to England and... Within a short period of time, they clearly did not like each other. She quickly started accusing him of trying to drug her at dinner, at which point she made these accusations public. So then he sued her for libel, which, I mean, it's Britain. It If there's a constant that unites the 18th century to today, it's that it's really easy to sue people for libel. So she lost that case, but the British public sided with her and just started like pelting this guy when they saw him with like, you know, just fruits and vegetables. Like there was this huge scandal and that's how she got like recalled for insolence. So I'm just wondering like, why was he trying to drug her?
2: Yeah. <laughs> I love, I love, there's been like other stories in the podcast too, where it's like the people of Britain, just like they riot at a moment's notice. They're so yeah. it's like, this is our star and we will defend her and it's, Yeah. I appreciate that consistency. So everything that she's doing is just like the most. Like this is not like a low-key life that she is living. The French foreign ministry made several attempts to kidnap and arrest her. In retaliation, she made her most scandalous move yet, which is she published a book of state secrets full of correspondence from Le Secret du Roi, full of salacious details and the promise there was more to come unless the French king stopped trying to bring her back.
3: Yeah, I think she held back like the invasion plans.
2: (laughs) But this is like, it's epic. I love, I love that they're like, you're coming back and she's like, oh, really? Like, well, what if I just like expose your entire like secret James Bond operation? And, and it worked. So the king agreed to leave her alone with a generous 12,000 livres salary on the condition that she did not reveal his worst secrets. So she was in England. She's just this like fabulous French woman in England in political exile. But I think I would assume based on the, the scandal and the stuff that had happened already like she was so she continued to be a celebrity like people were just like all about her in england so it's like of course she'd stay there like they left her there okay and then this is where i'm just like please help me with this so around 1770 rumors started to spread potentially started by her that she had actually been born a woman but had been raised as a man in order to receive a family inheritance
3: mm-hmm. yeah that's kind of one of the ways you do it like in some ways I think she was learning from some of the lessons that you could take away from like the lives of early 17th, early 18th century French trans women, which we'll talk about more later, because I think she decided, look, no, we have to actually convince everyone that I'm assigned female at birth or else I will never get what she, what I want. She probably did start through rumors herself because, I mean, she was literally a spy who intrigued constantly and used public opinion to get what she wanted. And yeah, I would not be surprised in the least. There was like a bet on the London stock exchange. Yes. <laughs> Just like giant betting pool, which is like perfect because that lets her do like this this virtuous, no, no, I will not. It's like humiliating that you're even betting about this. I will not deign to yeah. reveal it one or another, which of course inflames the speculation even further. The betting pool lasts for like a year.
2: Yeah, no, I've got in my notes here, it says there was three to two odds that she was a woman.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's probably not surprising. If we look at representations of her from her own lifetime, and especially from when she was relatively young, she's generally portrayed before she was outed as being quite beautiful. And she probably didn't look particularly masculine, given that most of those reports about that
2: really started to happen after she died. No, and I think just from what I understand, she was also, I think, like, a short person. Like, mm-hmm. for a, a short person with, like, a higher-pitched voice, anyway. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, like, outside the realm of... Like, so when she's like, oh, yeah, no, actually, I am a woman. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, that tracks. Like, mm-hmm. like that, that tracks. So apparently at this time, apparently forced to hire protection just to safely step inside her house because people wanted uh-huh. to, like, rip off her clothes to be like, what is your gender? Like, people are just... So like, it's such a, I don't know, just hearing about these like paparazzi level moments from like olden times. I'm just like, like humanity has been the same forever. Like there's always these like celebrities and people just like crowds follow them and whatever.
3: Yeah, what's determined weird enough to be worth invading privacy has varied culturally. But the fact that you can randomly invade people's privacy if you're curious and spread that to everyone else, that's been constant. I would argue since the Bronze Age.
2: Yeah. Well, no, it's giving me like early 2000s, like Perez Hilton upskirt shots of like Lindsay Lohan or whatever, right? Like people are just like wanting to rip off her clothes because she was like they just, they want to like consume her. So, yes, So the bet was abandoned. Oh, so that an envoy from Le Secret de Roi arrived in England to determine the truth, like about was she a woman? So she told all, she revealed she was a woman raised male by a father desperate for a son and heir. Which again, as you said, it's like Yeah, you want to be able to start living as a woman. So you're just like, guess what? I've always been a woman, but in a way that people would understand. Oh yeah, tons of like
3: mid 20th century American trans women did the same thing. Like it was a very common approach.
2: Yeah, so let's see. So the question was brought all the way to the court of the King's Bench. On July 2nd, 1777, the English government formally pronounced she who had called herself the Chevalier d'Anne until that day was an individual who did not possessed what the Appalachian man promised, and then she was a virago disguised in a uniform. I had to look up that word. Do you know that word? Virago kind of signifies female masculinity.
3: It's a Latin word that kind of suggests anything ranging from butchiness to like on its boundaries, it can sort of shade into that other like really ancient trope of the tribad. Tell me about that. The tribad is basically this, like, classical era, but also through the early modern era, conception of, like, sort of an obligate lesbian who's partially virilized genitally, which, of course, would mean you have to, you have to, like, have to go after women. It's just the way things work. Because it's very, like, you know, sexuality was super gendered. So it's this combination of, well, this woman will act like a man.
2: Yeah, so they're saying, like, they're saying like, okay, this person is not a man. They are, she is a virago, which is basically like a mannish woman. uh uh-huh. kind of what they're saying. Yeah. But this is like, okay, so it's official. <laughs> like the English government formally pronounced that she's a woman. So this is from, I think the article from, um, it's a site called them.us. So this was the perfect way to effect a public gender transition without losing her status or popularity by claiming to have been a woman pretending to be a man all along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then taking one step further she wedded her public transition to her pious religious nature arguing that because she was at heart a good honest christian woman she could no longer live a lie and everyone's like okay fair enough well i like,
3: can't allow you to be a man anymore yeah exactly and actually there were there were a bunch of little things which some people some people have interpreted as ambivalence because it's convenient but which i think is better understood as uh, protesting just the right amount so like, for instance, there was this whole kerfuffle over whether she could wear her military medals. She was very insistent that she could. But then there was this bit where she was like, and, am I to be forced to wear women's clothing all the time? Surely that's not progressive. Maybe you could fund it. <laughs> And then the king pays for a wardrobe by Marie Marie Antoinette's genius dressmaker.
2: Oh my God. We're definitely going to get to that because, well, I'll just say right now. So like she went back. Okay. So she's officially declared a woman, age 49, just for the record. Yeah. So she negotiated her return to France. And part of that, like you just said, was like, but I'll need gorgeous dresses. Like, who will give me those? And the king's like, okay, I will. Yeah. She agreed to publicly present as a woman for the rest of her life. So she went back to France. Um, she was formally presented at the court of Versailles. So there was a four hour makeover montage. So it included powdered hair and an elaborate gown outfitted by Marie Antoinette's own dressmaker, Rose Bertin. So it's not just like a coming out moment. It's like a coming out moment, like dressed in like, like Marie Antoinette, like in mm-hmm. an outfit that takes four hours to like put on.
3: Yeah, it's very much an I'm on top of the world. Ha ha, I win moment
2: like in the movie that I'm imagining in my mind, this is just this moment of just like the, it's like, what is it? I don't know. Any movie with like the prom or the person like coming down the stairs and everyone's like, what? The nerd is beautiful. Like her coming out, just like having been dressed personally by Marie Antoinette's dresser, just like I've arrived. Like this is me. It's beautiful. Um, okay. So the way that this article, it says um, being an 18th century noblewoman, after having been a soldier, spy and diplomat was kind of like not, is a little boring. It's kind of like, well, I don't want to just like hang around a court doing whatever. Like I'm a spy, I'm a soldier. Like she wants to keep doing stuff. So for instance, when France sided with the colonists in the American Revolution, she asked to be put back in uniform to assemble an all-female battalion to fight the British. I love it.
3: I mean, and I think that that's best understood. Like it would be easy to decontextualize it and treat it as just some sort of weird pipe dream she had. But I think it's best understood in the context of that you know, figures like Wollstonecraft were talking about her as this like proof that women can fight. Like, yeah, I think there's a political element to that, especially given like some of her later like public work as an abolitionist. I'm not surprised that her feminism and her abolition would, you know, appear in the form of, well, let's see if we can form regiments.
2: Yeah, no, I love it. I love that she's like, she's got all this military experience. She's like, let me use it. And then like her life, is inherently, like you said, like it's proof that like women can do this. The government apparently to that suggestion said, well, why don't you join a convent? (laughs) Yeah. Like just in terms of like not her being so progressive for the era and just being faced with people who are just like, does not compute like, no, no, a group of women sounds like a convent to me. Yeah, I
3: know. If she'd been 30 years younger, she would probably have been guillotined with a bunch of revolutionary era French feminists.
2: Yeah. Luckily, she had the goods on the king. And so she kind of was safe in that way. So she returned to London because, frankly, her life just seemed like a lot better there. She said she's going back there to settle up some business, but it potentially was more just to escape the strict life that she was being forced into in France. So in London, she continued to write because remember, she'd written all those books before and she collected a large library of early feminist works, which I love. Like you were saying, like her Mary Wollstonecraft, like she's like just as a figure of this time, she's like so into just like, let's get on this, like feminism, like let's make it happen. Like she's into it. While she was in England, though, the French Revolution happened. So actually, like, luckily, (laughs) she was out of town. So the French monarchy was abolished, meaning she no longer had the protection or the pension that she had been getting from the monarchy.
3: Or for people who don't think she was actually a woman and that she was doing this as some sort of 4D thing, any reason to live as a woman if she wasn't one?
2: Yeah, exactly. So it's like, if the king had said, okay, you have to live as a woman. And so she did, like once the king died, like she didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> anymore she was like clearly this is what she was doing by choice like for herself and then this part bums me out obviously the these are for life so she lived in poverty um she sold off her book collection but you were saying like she's giving fencing displays so this was like a way that she's making some money was just like showing off her cool fencing skills and people like what a woman who's a fencer like she had this trademark like long black dress that she would always wear
3: yeah there were a bunch of exhibition matches with her and uh joseph de boulon the uh Chalab de Saint George, who is sometimes called the Black Mozart, although actually Mozart slept on his couch. And they would, first, they were famous for being abolitionists, pressuring the British government to do something about the slave trade. But second, they would do their exhibition matches together. So, like, there are these political cartoons of just, you know, her and Joseph de Boulogne just dueling, but also, punching the regent the prince regent
2: <laughs> so they were like yeah thank you for bringing that up as well because i love i love the story of joseph as well i encountered it because the symphony here did a concert and i'm like oh <gasps> this is a musician i was like oh my god like i love the music i'm like who's this person i'm like oh and it's this guy like quote unquote the black but basically they just mean like it's a black man who lived at the same time as mozart who had like a white wig on so everyone's like oh the black mozart like yeah but he was actually like he was
3: amazing, and he was actually yeah. a big influence on Mozart. Yeah.
2: But I love the image of this, like, like, this black man, this trans woman, just, like, doing these fencing displays, and everyone's just like, yeah, we stand, Like, we love you. Like, oh, my uh-huh. God, it's these Like, so they're celebrities. And really progressive, like, abolitionists. Like, yeah. I love this moment. I love, I love, and this is, like, the early 1800s. So this is, like, if we want to put it into, like, this is like Bridgerton era, you know, it's like that's happening with like the marriage market and like whatever the Regency. And then like, at the same time, like they're doing these fencing displays, like mm-hmm. it's all happening all at the same time. So she's making these fencing displays because she needed money because she didn't have her pension for all of her military work and spy work. And then she lives the last few years of her life with a roommate who is another woman. I haven't seen anything. Actually, like, let's talk about that. So I haven't seen anything about the Chevalier having any romantic connections with anyone. Did you have you come up on anything about like a, her having a yeah. love life?
3: Honestly, no. Um which makes her relatively unusual compared to some of the other famous French trans women who were somewhat famous for their love lives. No, um as no one knows. I mean, it just doesn't seem to come up. Now, partially it could be that she was very disciplined about her own PR. So for all we know, she had secret affairs that just never saw the light of day but certainly certainly this was not something that was much talked about
2: yeah and I find that interesting in terms of how much her the fact that people are just like trying to rip off her clothes like people are so interested in like every detail of her life but there's never any sort of like scandal or rumors about her having affairs with anyone of any gender
3: well granted people trying to rip your clothes off is a great reason to be paranoid about that kind of thing
2: You know, yeah, and I agree. And that's a real hint. Like maybe you want to keep your love life private if you don't want.
3: Or potentially maybe you're a former spy and you don't trust anyone to see you in such an intimate way, especially given what happened when she was no longer alive to protect her privacy.
2: Yes. So she was living with this woman for the last several years of her life. Um, And then she died in 1810. Her roommate discovered her body. And then I'll let you describe what happened to her body.
3: Then some physicians decided to examine her and they were like, oh, look, a penis. It's perfect in every way. At which point the scandal was worth a lot. There's actually like a drawing of her genitals in the British Museum because people were very curious. Her autopsy report also notes that, you know, just like, okay, also boobs, very curvy, but look, a penis. And that Then led to her defenders, people who wanted to protect her reputation from the horrific charge of being a trans woman, which was a lot more scandalous in 1800 than in 1700, for reasons, to concoct various explanations as to why she was never really a trans woman and just had to disguise herself as a woman for decades and decades and decades and decades for other reasons.
2: Yeah, no, it was like she lived openly as a woman for 33 years where it's like, haha, I'm a spy and I'm going to dress like a woman. Like, that's a long time. Like- I know, no <laughs> one's that committed to the bit
3: unless it's actually something they care about.
2: No, exactly. So that's where it's like, like I was saying before, like the contortions that I've been, of historians trying to be like, okay, this, was, this is a story of a man who, because it was so clever and devious, decided to dress as a woman for 33 years. I think some of them were doing it in
3: kind of a horrifying attempt to rescue her reputation, (laughs) which obviously is upsetting to me, but at the same time, yeah. Like the contortions are extravagant.
2: Well, it's just like, if it's like, if there's two options and one of them is like, you know, A to B, here's the thing. And the other one is just like, well, what if you go from A to Z to this, to this, to this, to this, to this, it's like one of these is way more likely than the other one. Like the, amount of work you have to go through to see her as anything other than a trans woman Mm -hmm. is it just really speaks to how much people were committed well like you said like I was thinking it was like people just couldn't wrap their head around it but what you're explaining and I see now is they wanted to like preserve or like I don't know make her save her her legacy
3: from the horrific charge yeah, like there were fencers too. There were fencers. Who, there, were fencers there, were, there was at least one famous like fencer who among other things was writing about how she and his father, also a famous fencer, um, were good friends. And he refers to her as herself throughout. But there's like a brief aside, you know, just like, oh yeah, like sure, it came out later. She was a man the whole time. Um, moving on. And like, I think what we see is Plenty of people were not ashamed to have known her, were not ashamed of what she was, but maybe didn't have the political vocabulary to say, well, but actually, but actually, let's defend her womanhood on its own terms.
2: So no, keep going. It's such a complicated, yet not complicated. It's just such a shitty thing, frankly. Like that she, <laughs> like she had this cool life and she's so amazing. And they're just like, well, let's finally reveal the genitals like let's just like put them in the british museum yeah it's it's so gross they're still there
3: i mean the, 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 the drawing not the yeah. body
2: yeah where well, it's like she was famous well there was like the bet about like is she a woman but she was famous for like all these other cool reasons not just because of the question of gender and just to like to limit the legacy is just that i think
3: mm-hmm. so. oh 100 but like I think we have to look at that in a context where it became much, 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 much harder to be a trans woman. And in a lot of ways, harder to be a trans woman in England because um, this is the period of time where like between like her time basically parallels the massive like police crackdowns on so-called Molly culture in England, which is essentially working class trans women and trans femmes. I would call it a culture that consisted of working-class trans women and trans femmes and gay and bisexual men with a lot of space carved out for the trans feminine. But during, yeah, during her lifetime, that stamping out and criminalizing that entire cultural element was a huge thing that was ongoing in England. Whereas, like, a few years before she was born, there was this massive bestseller, which was the Comtesse de Boires memoirs, the they're often referred to as the transvestite memoirs by cis historians but yeah this like the climate she was born into would would have been in some ways more tolerant of gender variance than the climate she died in
2: which does explain kind of why she's drawn to living there at the time like when she first went there uh-huh it would have been more tolerant than when what it was like by the time she passed away
3: Yeah. And by the time she passed away, I think she was, she'd very heavily relied on essentially passing as cis for the rest of her life and having that validated with like official decrees and edicts and acts of parliament.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. No matter how far
1: you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who is about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served.
2: we're back which is just honestly like i can't it's so major to just be like not only like like what's the proof that i'm a woman it's like well like this act of parliament like (laughs) the french king has said and so you're like okay like cool that's like what more proof do you need so -hmm. she was buried in the churchyard of saint pancras old church um her remaining possessions were sold at Christie's auction house in 1813 and her grave is listed on the Burdette Coates memorial there as one of the important graves lost. The I don't know much about this, but the Beaumont Society is a long-standing organization for transgender people named after her. I don't know if you know anything about that organization.
3: Um I don't, but basically not long after she died, like from the 19th century to the present obviously. Trans people, however we describe ourselves, I mean, the terminology has changed a lot, but we've been around forever, have looked to her as, you know, an example of someone who successfully got the king of France to declare her a woman. Like, and just as evidence that you can be like an incredibly talented trans woman.
2: I love her story for that. And I love her story just for being just this, like... (laughs) scandalous like wild like who's just like i was a spy and then it's just like i decided to stay in england so i'm just gonna like basically blackmail the king (laughs) like the audacity with which she lived is is great it's like it's such a good story this is where it's like it's all intrinsically connected with like her identity like as a trans woman but and so which is why it bothers me to see her legacy being reduced to being like but what were the genitals where it's like there's 10,000
3: other more interesting things to talk about. Alas, that seems to be the trans-feminine condition in in trans-misogynist societies.
2: I think this is where I first heard about her. So in 2012, uh, the National Portrait Gallery in London purchased a portrait of her, which had been for a while, like no one knew who it was a portrait of. They're just like a portrait of a middle-aged woman. And then there was, oh no, this is a chevalier. And then it was, but I think that's where there's a lot of press about the portrait mm-hmm. being purchased, the identification of the portrait. So that's where I had first heard about it. And so now the portrait, I think itself, it's, I don't know, I love it. Like 2012 was a good period of time in terms of like the internet existing or whatever, where this portrait came out and there's a lot of articles, a lot of discussion about it. And that brought, I think, a new level of attention to her story, which is good.
3: Well, I think that one of the things that, like one of the things that contemporary representations of, a, of her show, and then we touched on this a little bit before, is just the extent to which people kind of redrew her when they knew she was a trans woman. Like, so especially portraits that are from before her death portray her extremely differently. She's just a younger middle-aged woman, an older middle-aged woman, sometimes in the scandalous years where they're speculating, she's a very hot young woman, blah, blah, blah. And it's, yeah, it's just really revealing that a relatively unremarkable portrait of her would go unlabeled for 200 years because it didn't look stereotypically managed enough.
2: I love that she was at a level, well, for anyone I do in this podcast, I love when there's actual portraits of people because there's so many women in history where there's not, but I love that she was at a level of fame and importance that she was, portraits of her were done during her life. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. So she has appeared as a character in some fictional works. This is the like legacy portion of Mm -hmm. it. So there's a film in 1928, The Spy of Madame Pompadour, 1959. Okay. This is a film loosely based on her life that portrays her as a woman masquerading as a man, which is like...
3: Which is pretty much just taking her propaganda and running with it, which is fine.
2: Yeah. So that's The Secret du Chevalier d'Anne from 1959. 2006, have you seen or are you familiar with the anime series, The Chevalier Dayon? I've heard of it. I haven't been able to actually track it down. I'd love to. What I know of it is that it's some sort of like supernatural type thing where she like, it's like she, the spirit of her dead sister lives in her body and she like switches back and forth between a masculine person and a feminine person. So almost like oh, a yeah. Sailor Moon transformation. So, well, I love Sailor Moon, but <laughs> yeah, Sailor <laughs> so, Transmission in kind of the worst possible way. I have not seen it, but that is what I've heard about it. And that's also honestly, when you look up the Chevalier Dale, like a lot of your search results are going to be about this anime series. I'm interested in this and I've not listened to it, but the Doctor Who audio series has an episode featuring her, which I, oh, cool. I think. And she appears as an unplayable character that gives out side quests in the video game Assassin's Creed Unity.
3: <laughs> that's not a surprise but i am not familiar with the portrayal unity is one of the few assassin's creeds i haven't played
2: i don't know there's been a couple of people done the podcast where it's just when you're looking at like them in pop culture and it's like and they're an assassin's creed i'm like should i play assassin's creed all these people well assassin's creed is filled with historical easter eggs like yeah. so yeah
3: uh that's kind of their like <laughs> as long as you can get past the cheesy ridiculous sci-fi frame narrative There's a lot to like.
2: Yeah. No, and that's where I'm just like, I forget who, just a couple other historical figures. I'm like, they're in Assassin's Creed. I'm like, they're in Assassin's Creed? (laughs) The more I hear about it, the more I'm like, I'm intrigued. Okay, I want to talk to you. We need to do, so on my podcast, we do a score for everybody, Uh just on various categories. And I'm going to get your thoughts about where the Chevalier is going to fall. So there's four categories. The first category is scandaliciousness. Which is just, as you can probably presume, just kind of like how gossipy and like fantastic was this person's life and story. What's the scale? The scale is a zero to 10. So 10 being the highest.
3: Oh, I think definitely 10 on scandalousness. I mean, she blackmailed the King of France. I, I will reveal your invasion plans. Like that's like, basically she said, I will start a war. I will
2: literally start a war if you don't bag off. I agree. I agree entirely. And then when you add on to that, the fact like that she was a spy, that she worked for this like super secret spy network, like it's a high score there. The next category. So again, it's a zero to 10. So next one is scheminess. So just like, and that can be sort of like how smart she was, but like how many plans she did, were they good schemes? And I feel like this is going to be a high score as well, but I will default to you.
3: I would say at least an eight, like, yeah, you know, maybe she wasn't able to successfully get an Amazon army, which clearly was her end game and which would have been amazing. So
2: can't give her the 10 there, but like, yeah, she was a skilled schemer. I think between like the fact that she was very successful as a spy and then the fact, like the way that she stayed in England and then the blackmail plot. And then also the way that she'd like used her celebrity And PR to just, like, affect this transition. Like, Mm -hmm. I agree. I think an eight is good.
3: And, like, you know, she was remarkably
2: successful
3: destroying the career of the diplomat who apparently drugged her.
2: Yes, yes. I don't have a scale for, like, (laughs) vengeance, but I feel like she would get that, too. Because she's just like, oh, you crossing with me? Like, guess what? Like, I've been a spy my whole life. I'm super smart. And, like, I will destroy you. And she did. Not a person you want to cross. Um, The next category is significance. So this can be both like her significance, like at the time she was alive, but then like the legacy, what she means to other people, but also like what she did that could have set the stage for future generations of people.
3: Well, that's really complicated. Like we're still talking about her and so many trans women I know are motivated to claim her because the gall, like the nerve...
2: Well, that's why I think, I think her significance is really strong to the trans community. So I think if you just see it through that scale, like how significant is she? Yeah. And I would say her significance,
3: she would have been a much more significant figure in the history of early feminism if cis women hadn't dropped her after the genital reveal. Like definitely you don't see the next generation after Wollstonecraft treating her as the same level of figure. And it has everything to do with just having decided that she was never a woman.
2: Honestly, though, when we think too about the significance of like her actions in the war, her war. actions as a spy, like we can never quantify what exactly that did, but I think she was involved in Francis' success Mm-hmm. some of these as well. Yeah. But it's good, it's hard to say. So I don't know, where would you put her for significance? To
3: the trans community, probably an eight, nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, more broadly six seven
2: okay i'm gonna average that out to like 7.5 cool but yeah no that's i like how you broke that down because yeah it's like significance to the trans community really high but then she i think she should be more significant to oh yeah but she's not so it's like we need to be yeah
3: i mean i think roald wollstonecraft had it right like
2: so then the last category so it's the sexism category, which is just like how much did the patriarchy hold her back? Everybody gets at least a five because, of course, but like how much do you th- how much did sexism hold her back? Ten. Yeah. In life and in death,
3: like mm. it's pretty clear that the scope of her ambitions was enormous. Clearly, she wanted to end slavery. Clearly, she wanted to end patriarchy like and of course the two are linked clearly she wanted to do a great deal and she managed to do a lot for herself but she did die poor and then she you know for the next 200 years people argued about whether she was like a trans woman or just a man with a really good reason to pretend to be a trans woman which is much (laughs) yeah
2: and i hate how that obfuscate all of the cool stuff that she had been doing to like limit her to just be like, oh, look at this interesting gender story where it's like, no, like she wanted to send an all-woman brigade to the American Revolution. Like she wanted, like she was so into like the feminist stuff at the time. Like, but yeah, no. So how that all adds up, just so you know, is a 35.5. The highest score anyone's ever gotten on the podcast is a 38. So she's like close. Ooh, to it a 38. 38 is Fred I don't know if you know about Fredigan. Oh, yes,
3: yes, I know Fredigan.
2: <laughs> she's yeah. like, who can top her? So far, nobody. But yeah, so Fredigan is a 38. Queen Margot has 37.5. I they're gonna get
3: extra points for like gleeful murder, right?
2: Fredigan gets points for a lot of murder based things. Yeah. And Jingga of Angola has a 36. Um, Harem Sultan has 36, and then the Chevalier 35.5. So she's in yeah. fifth fifth place overall. It's a good ranking. I am happy. I'm happy for her. I think she deserves to be right up there. Now, since I have you, who are the other two trans women of the 18th century who you want to talk about?
3: All right. Well, let's start with the lower ranking one first.
2: Known to history as the Abbé de Choisy
3: and from Burgundy, but also known better, I think, well, I'm not going to misgender her. I'm just going to call her Debar. Because she decided she was the Comtesse de Bar for several years and then wrote a massively successful memoir about it. Essentially, she was the story she put out was that her mother simply decided she was a girl and raised her accordingly. But like that was probably political maneuvering as well, because that was just how she preferred to be. And also because she spent much of her childhood as playmate to Louis the XIV's trans sister. More on that in a second. Okay. <laughs> Their mothers were, were tight and were just like, well, let's just get them both great dresses. Like life may be hard, but it doesn't have to be hard now. So at the age of 18, she was sort of heavily socially shamed and was like, okay, fine. I guess I'll try to dress as a boy for a bit didn't like it, stopped almost immediately and spent vast amounts of money on ridiculously gaudy outfits because she was a fashionista. At one point, the Dauphin's like hard-ass tutor comes up to her at a party and is just like, you should be ashamed of yourself. You disgust me completely. What's wrong with you? And she's like, well, I just can't, I can't just have people walking up to me at parties doing that. I've got to get out of Paris. So like... She retreats to the countryside. She has her lawyer prepare for her an identity as a respectable widow. And the Comtesse de Bar, Uh, she dyes her hair. She's like, yeah, okay, fine. We'll just go with really dark hair for now. And then suitably disguised, she basically just starts sleeping with everyone in sight, according to her memoirs. Like, well, she only really records the women she slept with because that wasn't illegal. Like there was no potential death penalty for sleeping with women. So it's like memoirs of a trans lesbian. She gives her skincare regimen in passing and her memoirs. Her memoirs are actually hilarious. They're kind of ridiculous. Um, she starts them off by basically observing. She's like, every so often I try, I try to stop being a woman. <laughs> like, I put on boy clothes and the darndest thing keeps happening. I just gamble all the time. She's like, I spend so much money gambling. That eventually, I just realized I can't keep doing this anymore. So I repierce my ears, put on a gray dress, and I feel great. <laughs> She's like, let me tell you about my skincare regimen. My skin <laughs> it is amazingly soft. Of course, I'm gorgeous. And her memoir just continues in this vein. Like, it's hilarious. And I love it. Like, incredibly like, arrogant. She yeah. was probably annoying to be around, but she was hilarious. There's... A rumor that I find somewhat credible that one of her lovers was Prince Eugene of Savoy, uh-huh. which would be scandalous on multiple levels, especially since this is like roughly War of the Spanish Succession Era. No, it's yeah. a little before that. I guess it's, yeah, it's before that. So maybe it's not that scandalous. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just scandalous because, you know, Prince Eugene of Savoy. She's also known for being part of a diplomatic mission to the Kingdom of Siam. Really? and writing extensively yeah. about it. She wasn't just a pretty face. <laughs> David Hume actually has both her, had both her like scandalous memoirs and her account of the situation in Siam in his library. Eventually, she sort of went back to the countryside and just carried on writing letters to various scandalous people. Her memoirs were a big bestseller posthumously, but also there were a bunch of open secrets during her life. She's an interesting figure to me. She also apparently wrote a fairy tale with Charles Charles Perrault. And I forget which feminist writer of the late 17th century, but it was like Charles Perrault, the writer of fairy tales, this feminist and her sat down to write a fairy tale. The fairy tale is essentially the story of this young Marquise who has this interesting backstory where her mother was like, I'm going to have a girl, then... After her child was born, she was informed she had a boy. And she was like, Nope, nope, girl. Fairy tale proceeds. You know, the young girl was raised in extravagance. She had all these wonderful things. She had all the accomplishments you would expect pretty dresses, too, and so on and so forth. Then it's like, and then one day she meets this handsome young marquis, her exact social station. Wonderful, match made in heaven. They fall for each other. They arrange a marriage. On the wedding night, they're disrobing innocently. Not suspecting anything could be amiss. And then basically, what happens is they both have a surprise genital reveal, and sort of look at each other, shrug, and are like, well, this is fine, <laughs> <laughs> and proceed with their lives happily ever after. <laughs> Which is like, I guess you could say early tea for day." I'm trying to find a good copy of that, but it's difficult to track down. There's a, I forgot which University Press has a pretty good omnibus with it um, and her memoirs, but like from 2004. So I dread the author's note. But yeah, so that's that's the Comtesse de Bar or the Abbe de Choisy. Yeah. And the person whose playmate she was, Philippe, the trans sister of Louis the Fourteenth, has a completely bananas life as well.
2: Okay. I'm like... I'm so excited to hear.
3: <laughs> so clearly in her childhood, at least at least according to Choisy, she had a playmate who was also a trans girl and they hung out together and they wore dresses and everything was great. But she was also like a pretty major prince, which brought a lot of heartbreak. So she had this, this famous on-again, off-again relationship with this duke. It was very stormy. At one point, she marries, I forget who, someone, someone important. And then, of course, he feuds, like the Duke feuds with her wife, with with her wife. It's this whole mess. Her wife gets the Duke sent to the Bastille or no, was it to the Chateau Uh d'If? Yeah, her wife gets, her wife gets her boyfriend sent to the Chateau d'If. Then she has to go to her brother and be like, please let my boyfriend out of the Chateau d'If. Please let my boyfriend out of the Chateau d'If. She was apparently a very successful general, like terrifying field commander, and famously had a statue of Achilles created in the gardens of Versailles. It's Achilles on Skiros, so it's like Achilles in a beautiful dress looking like the woman warrior she was, apparently very significant to Philippe because that was her contribution to the gardens of Versailles which I find pretty interesting. It's like, oh, okay. She definitely related to this particular version of Achilles who's interpreted as a trans-feminine person. When she died, her friends were like, oh, she was the silliest woman who ever lived. Like, basically that was her obituary. (laughs) Her life was probably pretty sad, but like also very privileged with stormy boyfriends and... Wives who sent those stormy boyfriends to the Chateau d'If.
2: Since you brought up the statue of Achilles, I feel like it's a natural progression to wrap things back around to your version of Achilles in your book, which everybody should buy and read. I agree. Buy
3: wrath, got sing. Read wrath, got sing. You'll get to meet Achilles.
2: So... I know like the vague outlines of the story of Achilles, but I don't, I'm not familiar with the part you just said about what the statue is made of, like the Mm -hmm. Achilles, like this Achilles. Like what's that? What's that story? So
3: one of the, one of the parts of the Achilles mythos is and this is in a bunch of different classical sources, um, and also represented on art from the classical period, probably it reflects a pretty old tradition. It's not referenced in the Iliad, but it appears on art pretty early, where Achilles lived for years before the Trojan War as a woman named Pyrrha on the island of Scyros, and had a relationship with the princess of Scyros de So Achilles was a trans lesbian. And that episode was super popular in art, literally from the classical period to the 19th century, when it kind of stopped, because all of a sudden, people needed a little more consistency in their gendered representations of Achilles. But yeah, frequently, like... a surprisingly often amount of the time Achilles is portrayed as a woman. Mm-hmm. We see this in the Renaissance, we see this in the Middle Ages, we see this in the Classical period. Achilles was often portrayed by women on stage. Shakespeare kind of riffs on that when he makes his Achilles very feminine. It's just a really long-standing tradition. There's a Roman epic, unfinished epic, called the Achillead, which by Statius, which I detest, which is one of the more elaborated forms of that story. Statius just decides to take the the narrative and go as transmisogynist as he can in order to, I guess, make Achilles like the kind of man the Romans could relate to. In that version, Achilles is forced to live as a woman by his mother in order to prevent Achilles from going to war. So the first scene is just like, mom, I can't believe you would force me to live as a woman. I'm so mad at you. Wait, the princess of Skiros is hot. I'm going to rape her. And that's what happens. Which, I mean, that's the kind of thing that the Romans vibed with. It's definitely not the kind of thing I vibe with. So I thought to myself, well, this cannot stand. Then I thought to myself, also, isn't it a simpler and more economical story if Achilles is just a trans woman?
2: Exactly. It's the Chevalier all over again.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was the point of departure for writing Wrath Goddess Sing. Yeah. We start on Skiros. She ran away from Fia some years before, like less than two years before, but you know, a couple years. In order to live as herself, she's constantly worried that sails in the distance might mean that her Myrmidon relatives have come to collect her sales appear they turn out to be Diomedes and Odysseus who are looking for Prince Achilles and have no idea that the polite young woman they just encountered is Prince Achilles and it kind of goes from there but it gets very weird
2: yeah I'm so excited about it I have I'm very much looking forward to reading it and I think it's there's Could you have known when you were writing this book that it's coming at this moment where people are like obsessed with like Circe and like the Trojan women, like books about this time period. These myths are like having a moment and like, here you come.
3: (laughs) Honestly, we had so many publishers pass because they were like, the song of Achilles just came out 10 years ago. Surely this wave is over.
2: And then enter like book talk and suddenly everybody is all about it. Yeah. And I think too, that's a great time to just sort of
3: think about what we're doing as we retell, because there are so many different ways to retell. And these stories were never neutral. Like the Iliad, for instance, it's, I mean, Alexander the Great slept with a copy of the Iliad under his pillow and literally would occasionally just say, my ancestor Achilles was killed in this area so I can invade. Like it became the foundation of like the Hellenistic Imperial colonial literature. The British used it the same way. The Iliad is like like retellings and framings of these stories are never neutral. And I think it's really interesting to think about what we're doing when we decide to make Achilles the kind of person who would only ever would only ever deign to wear women's clothing in order to rape princesses, or when we reject that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels very timely.
2: Yeah. It's, I think it's coming at the perfect moment for this book. I think not just because of like retellings happen to be like popular, but just because of where we are as a society, not to get into all of that, but I think it's so important. And I think this is part of what was in the um, the message I got from your publicist was just saying like, this is, what is it? It's like like a book about a trans character written by a trans author being published by one by this huge publisher like this is like groundbreaking in those ways
3: yeah it's something that couldn't have happened even a few years ago and hopefully in a few years it'll continue to be conceivable
2: no but i think like as everything we've just been talking about like it's just such a good reminder or maybe some people who didn't know that like trans people have been here all along <laughs> it's oh awesome. yeah. The, yeah the
3: earliest known the earliest writer whose name we know and heduana writes extensively, like basically praising the goddess Inanna that transition is possible. And there are substantial hints in the text that at least was either was the author or was regarded as the author of these super famous religious hymns that were used for the next 2,500 years. And there are definitely trans elements in how Enhidawana is described in these hymns as well. Which wouldn't actually be surprising, but it would be one of those cases of a historical figure who has just been presumed cis because there's not affirmative evidence of transness. But affirmative evidence of transness doesn't even help, as we see with Valier. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, God, you're you know so much about everything. I'm just like learning. <laughs>
0: Thank
2: you. <laughs> I'm learning so much from you. Have you? So you've always had an interest in Greek mythology. You said that's been kind of like your thing from a young age. Did you study history or is it more of like, I mean, like, did you like officially study history or is this just like in your, you just do it yourself?
3: Oh no, I'm a talented amateur. Yeah. No, my formal degrees are in fiction. Okay. But no, um, trans history. I mean, I would also say like to be interested in the written word, Growing up as a trans woman as a millennial meant constantly encountering buried trans stories, likely at Daboma, but also like Hedwana or like Yusupov who killed Rasputin Yusupova has a memoir, Lost Splendor, which essentially amounts to coming out repeatedly as a trans woman, but also being confident no one will ever actually get it. So like at one point the assassin of Rasputin just spends chapters talking about how gorgeous she was in her dresses as she lived for years as a woman in her brother's house before there was a giant scandal that caused her family to find out. And like, you run into these stories, you look around, everyone is just saying, oh, you know, he was just unusual over and over again, but they build and... It becomes this this itch in the back of your brain you can't scratch. It becomes this sensation like walking over your own grave constantly. You just have these these buried stories. So I would say more than anything, my love of stories and mythology and history is also tied to that. It's tied to, oh, there are, there's hidden stories that can seal the light of day, but only if we actually encounter them on their own terms instead of saying, nope, nothing to see here. Yeah, so it's like detective work. Mm-hmm. It's like un unforgetting.
2: Yeah. It's like brushing away all these like convoluted explanations that don't actually make any sense to be like, oh, but the obvious thing is like, oh, this is a trans woman. Like mm-hmm. if we just <laughs> if we just remove like 75% of this bio- of this like biography and just like focus on like what actually the facts are, you're like, oh, well, here's the story of a trans woman. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. So it's just like this weeding through all that stuff. Yeah. In a way, it's like a demystification. And it's like a clarification of just, if you get rid of all the like confusing other people, well, all history, I guess, is written by somebody who's an agenda. But once you realize that agenda, if you're like, well, how many of these facts are being filtered through somebody's point of view? And then like at the end of the day, when you get rid of that point of view, like what is left? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I find it so fascinating. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. This is like, I can't wait to, publish this i can't wait for everybody to hear everything you have to say i can't wait for people to learn like a about the chevalier and b about you and your book thank you oh my gosh i'm really excited thank you so much for this amazing conversation thank you for having me it was a pleasure so again that was a re-release of an interview from last year when wrath goddessing was first coming out it is now available in trade paperback as well I'll drop a link to buy that in the show notes. But also if you go to Maya Dean's website, you can learn more about more about her and her book and how to get copies of the book as well. And I also wanted to mention the Chevalier d'Anne of it all. So that is the design I put in the merch store a couple months ago when we were doing uh, the tits out for trans rights fundraiser. And I just wanted to let you all know that that still continues. Like anytime, like I keep track of when I sell any of the Chevalier de we have always been here, designed by Jan-Yupiter from my merch shop. Um, those funds are still going to be donated to Point of Pride, an organization that is a trans-affirming organization that's doing great work in the United States. And just to simplify things in order, like in terms of this fundraiser, I've set up a link that you can use this month. So if you go to vulgarhistory.com slash pride, it'll take you to a bonfire site. This is a different, it's a, a site that really works well for raising funds through merch, which is exactly what I'm doing. So again, if you go to vulgarhistory.com slash pride, you can buy the Chevalier Dayon t-shirt and all the funds there are going to be donated to Point of Pride. So anyway, but I mean, your first and most important call to action is to read Maya's book, Wrath Goddess Sing, now available in trade paperback. And then Otherwise, happy Pride Month, everybody. And I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode and keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi.
1: No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who is about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served.